Lord, I want to thank you that your word is true. And Lord, you tell us to proclaim the word and in season and out. And this is kind of an out of season moment for me. Uh, Lord, I, <laughs> I don't have any kind of pain, but I just look terrible. And so, Lord, uh, I pray that my appearance will not be a distraction uh, from your word today. I pray that you will speak and move me out of the way. Uh, Lord, you tell us when we are weak, that's when you are strong. And so, Lord, I pray that your word will come out extra clear today. Because this is important. There's an important lesson today in this story. And so, Lord, um, thanks for this opportunity to be here today and look at your word. Encourage us today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, I uh, want to welcome everybody who's joining us online and uh, in Wetumpka. So uh, there are sermon notes available online at centeringlives.com. But for everybody who's got a hard copy in front of you, point A reminds us that the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines when the Israelite army carried it into, a, into battle in a foolish attempt to manipulate God. If you weren't with us last week or the week before, we're going through some stories from 1 Samuel. And it's a dark time in the history of God's people, the Israelites, because they've decided to do whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. They turned away from the clear teaching of God's word. And I think you'll understand why we're looking at these stories. We live in a time like that, where there's clear teaching from God's word on a whole host of subjects. And we're going, no, we're going to do what we think is right. And that's what, that's what they were doing. And so people became superstitious and they trusted in all kinds of things that weren't true at all. They even made up all kinds of thoughts about God and the way he would interact with them. And so at the time, uh, the Israelites were fighting against the Philistines and they were in a big battle. So and I'll explain what the ark is and all that in just a minute. At that time, Israel was at war with the Philistines. Okay, so you'd have to imagine in, in like a conflict between Palestinians and the Israelis living now fighting over territory, if you can imagine that. Seriously, these people lived in what today would be called the Gaza Strip, the Philistines did. And they were fighting over land with the Israelites. I mean, it's exactly like today. So at that time, Israel was at war with the Philistines, and the Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. The Philistines, by the way, the reason they're on the, the if you're not familiar with the geography of Israel, the Gaza Strip is uh, next to the Mediterranean, and they're uh, the, the, the ancestors of the Philistines had come from the island of Crete, and they, had, they were seafaring people, and they had immigrated that way uh, to, to the land of Israel. Uh, uh, and so what was happening was, is they brought with them a lot of technology that the Greeks had. Like they had, uh, they were the first people to really take advantage of iron in their weapons. And they had better spears and swords and helmets, they even had chain mail and stuff. And the Israelites didn't have anything like that. And so this was a big problem for the Israelites. And then when they went into battle, they were outmatched. Um, the Philistines had better tech. Anyway, after the battle was over, the troops returned retreated to their camp and the elders of Israel, Israel asked, why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? Because centuries earlier, when um, the Israelites had come into the promised land, the reason it's called the promised land is God had promised them this land and said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. As long as you worship me and honor me and trust me and don't copy the behavior of the people around you who are wicked and make up all kinds of things about me, if you will do what I say and what I tell you, 
then I'll protect you and I'll give you victory in battle. I'll protect you from disease. I'll bless you with children and prosperity and rain for your crops. I'll take care of you. But the people, like I said, they had turned away from God's word and they were doing exactly what their neighbors did. And instead of saying, hey, we got defeated in battle. I wonder if we've been listening to God. They said, what did we do wrong that God didn't let us win? So then they said, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. Now, if you're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant or Shiloh and other things, Shiloh was a uh, place where um, the Israelites uh, had a portable temple called a tabernacle, and they had stationed it there for a number of years. And this is where you would go and offer sacrifices. Jerusalem was not yet the center of power or, you know, David is going to be introduced at the end of the um, writings of Samuel here or of 1 Samuel. And so uh, that, he hadn't set up his kingdom yet. The ark was still in this portable tabernacle tent. And um, the priests that we learned last week who were taking care of the sacrifices of the people were corrupt. They had gotten corrupt just like the people. And so the army said, well, let's get God to win this battle. If God isn't going into the battle with us, it's because we don't have the sacred chest, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, in battle with us. When the Israelites had come into the promised land at the battle of Jericho, uh, God had instructed the priests to carry the Ark uh, through some carrying poles on their shoulders. They would carry the Ark around the city and they marched around it for seven days and then the walls fell. And they said, that's what we need to do. We need to get the Ark that's, that's the reason they won. Now, they forgot all about the fact that God had commanded Joshua and the people to carry the ark. And they didn't put their confidence in God. They put their confidence in the box. The ark, ark just means box. That's why Noah's ark was a box to save the animals. Just a big, it was a very big box, but it's a box. And this ark was the chest that they kept the Ten Commandments in, the the stone tablets that God had inscribed the Ten Commandments on, that was his covenant with the people. And it was in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And it was not meant to be a lucky charm or an idol that you carried into battle. In fact, when you came into the temple, you were to offer sacrifices because of your sin, because you could never measure up to the terms written on the stone tablets. God wanted people to come to him, not trust in a box. That, that's why at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, it opens with this. You should have no other gods before me, which means there are no other gods besides me. You're not supposed to make any graven image. You're not supposed to make idols. I don't want you bound down to idols. You can't capture me. I don't look like a, a cow or a pig or the sun or the moon. You can't make anything that will do me justice. I created all those things. So you can't create anything that will do me justice. Just worship me. I want a relationship with you. Just come to me. I'll be your God. You be my people. Obey me. That's what I want. I want you to trust me. And that's the one thing they didn't do. They could have gone to the tabernacle and said, hey, we got defeated in battle. Lord, have we sinned against you? And he would have said, yes, repent. Come back to me. But instead, they got the two corrupt priests to carry the box into battle. 
So they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of Heaven's armies, who's enthroned between the cherubim. On the lid of the chest, the chest was, oh, about uh, three and a half feet long, a couple feet wide. I mean, so that's what the Ten Commandments, those two tablets would have been in there, would have been about that size. And on the lid, there were two angels, cherubim, whose wings were outstretched. There's one on either end of the lid, and their wings were outstretched, and their wings all came almost touched right in the middle of the lid on, on the top of the chest. And when God told Moses to build this thing, this chest, he said, I want you to put two angels on the top and their wings will almost touch. And he said, when then, then when you come into the most holy place and you talk to me, since I'm invisible and you can't see me, I want you to address me there. That's where I will be directly on top of the covenant that I've made with my people because the tablets will be in the chest. Does this make sense to everyone? That's where you're supposed to talk. Well, so when Moses prayed and when other high priests came, that's where they prayed. They prayed in that direction, right there as they prayed for the people. He said, then you'll know where to, that's where I want you to address me. Well, these people took it, okay, so God's on top of the box. So if we carry the box, then God has to go into battle. That's not the way it works. God is not in a box. If that's good news to you, would you say amen? amen. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons we worship the God of heaven. The whole earth can't contain him. The universe can't contain him. He made the universe. But anyway, they said, so let's go get the box the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who's enthroned between the cherubim. If that's where he sits, let's carry the throne, and then he has to go into battle. I mean, he's stuck on top of the chair, so we carry him in there. <sighs> when all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into the camp, their shout of joy was so great it made the ground shake. What's going on, the Philistines asked. I mean, so they had gone to their camp. The Philistines had gone to their camp. What's going on in the Hebrew camp? What's all the shouting about? When they were told it was because the ark of the Lord had arrived, they panicked. Oh, their gods have come into their camp, they cried. They're the same gods who destroyed the Egyptians with plagues when, when Israel was in the wilderness. Fight as never before, Philistines. So the Philistines fought desperately, and Israel was defeated again. And the slaughter was great. 30,000 Israelite soldiers died that day, and the survivors turned and fled to their tents, and the ark of God was captured. Whew. Wow. And if you're here today and you're also going, and sometimes I just want to introduce this too, and you go, man, I, yeah, that's an interesting story, John, but there's no archaeological evidence for any of this. Actually, in the 1970s, at the place where it describes right where this to happen would happen, they were excavating some houses at a place uh, called Isbet Sarta, and they found a piece of pottery about the size of this card. It had five lines on it. And these five lines, it says there was a great battle here. I mean, those days when people broke a piece of pottery, paper was expensive. A lot of times they'd take the pottery and write on it the same way you, way you and I would on a card if we wanted to remember something. Great battle took place here. And it talks about how the Philistines defeated the Israelites, captured their ark, and it even talked about how they killed one of the priests named Hophni. So yes, there is archaeological evidence that this battle happened. And I'm saying that because this is all part of a series about being bold. We can trust God's word. God's word is true. 
This is our guide in all matters of faith and practice. Don't let people tell you there's no, there's no archaeological evidence for any of this. There's tons. Tons. And there's more being found all the time. That's not correct. But I also want to remind you that the Israelites' loud celebration when they brought the ark into the camp was meaningless because their faith was misplaced. They trusted in the ark, not God, to save them. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus. We use this building as a place to meet, to sing praises to Jesus, but this building is no different than any other building. It's why we were okay when we met in a hotel until this building was put together. This building doesn't have any sort of special magical powers. It's a place where we meet and we pray God's blessing on it. But if his Holy Spirit doesn't move while we're in here, then nothing's going to happen. This is just bricks and sticks. But the Lord, he is the almighty one. Now this matters because we don't want to become superstitious and trust in, thing, trust in buildings to save us. The, and by the way, a few hundred years later, when the Israelites had completely turned their back on God, he sent prophets to them time and again to warn them to come back to him. They wouldn't do it. He said, well, then I'm going to bring in a nation that's coming to destroy your city, capital city, Jerusalem. I'm going to destroy the temple. You're trusting in a temple. You're not trusting in me. In fact, these are some of the words uh, that were written by the prophet Jeremiah. And he said, don't be fooled into thinking you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. This is God speaking through his prophet. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours? And then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we're safe. Only to go right back to all those evils again. You think this is a game? I want a relationship with you. I want you to trust me. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. You think it's just going through some kind of ceremonies and showing up at church, now we're good, but then live however you want? That's not what I want. I want you to love me and trust me. I'm your God. You don't know what you're doing. You don't have a clue. I think we could all agree that we're pretty much like them. We don't have a clue. But when we read God's word and we listen to him and allow the Holy Spirit to change us, oh man, he gives us joy and peace and new life and direction. This is what he wants. So God doesn't want us to trust in any kind of magic charms or lucky rabbit's feet or anything like this. And so here's a life application. Instead, God wants us to humble ourselves and seek him. Instead of trying to use him to get what we want. I mean, sometimes people ask me, does prayer really work? And what their translation, how do I pray so I can get God to give me what I want? What are the magic words? What's the password that I need to type in in prayer to get God to give me the job, give me the car, give me the money, give me the relationship, give me the future I want? What do I need to do? Just tell me that. That's all I want. Don't, yeah, I don't care about reading the Bible and praying and surrendering. Yeah, I, I don't want that. Just tell me what I need to do to get God to give me what I want. And then leave me alone. Well, if you're looking for that, you won't find it here. We're not here to tell you that. That's not what God wants us to do. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what uh, God had told Solomon when he built the temple. He said, don't put confidence in a temple. Put confidence in me. Come to the temple and pray. Use the temple as a place to gather but it's just a building. I can't be limited by a building. God wants us to come to him. Here's the good news. Listen to this again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. And God had told Solomon that when the people had been exceptionally wicked. Do you know you and I can come to God no matter who we are, no matter what we've done? Anytime, and he'll forgive us. If this is good news to you, would you say amen? amen? That's why we come. Well, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, this gets really interesting. Let me read point two here. After their victory over the Israelites, the Philistines foolishly placed the Ark in the temple of their god Dagon in order to display Dagon's superiority, but it didn't work out very well. Okay, the Philistines had a pantheon of gods. They had a god for crops, and they had a god for weather. They had a god for victory and war and all these things. But the god over the whole thing was Dagon. And they'd come by sea, and um, I think the old Hebrew word for uh, fish was dag or you know, something like this. So I think, or dag or whatever. So his name Dagon came from that. So he was half man and half fish. And he was the mighty God, and they had just won. And so they believed that the ark was the Israelites' idol. So they carried the Israelites' idol into the temple of their idol, their god, Dagon, where they had a statue, this half-fish, half-man statue, and they put it in there like a trophy. This would be like a trophy case at your high school, you know, with the state championship. This would have been the, you know, promised land championship. We won. They believed that their God was stronger than the Israelites' God. So they put the ark in there to show it off. So after the, after the Philistines captured the ark of God, they took it from the battleground in Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. And they carried the ark of God into the temple of Dagon, and they placed it beside an idol of Dagon. But when the citizens of Ashdod went, to see, went in the next morning to see it, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they placed the ark next to the statue. Here's Dagon, and, you know, and he's standing there, however half fish, half people statues stand. And he's standing there, and they put the ark right there. Well, they come in, and the statue is now face down as if it's worshiping the ark, bowing down and worship in front of the ark. Now, you and me would go, wow, that's really freaky. And we should probably take note of that. So what they did is they went, wow, hmm, must have been a breeze in here. Let's put Dagon back up. So they put Dagon back up in his place. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place again. You could underline that. We're going to come back to that. But the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen down before the ark of the Lord again. And this time his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. Now, that would really be freaky to me. 
And so what they did, that's why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor anyone who enters the temple of Dagon and Ashdod will step on the threshold. His head and his hands were piled in the doorway. So they had to step over it to get in. And as they went, wow, you know what this means? That's a dangerous threshold. Let's never step on that. And they glued his arms and his head back on. I don't think they got the point. Here's a note. It is foolish to place our faith and confidence in things that can't even take care of themselves. Here's what Jeremiah, that prophet I was talking about, told the Israelites when they were worshiping idols. Their ways are futile and foolish. They cut down a tree and a craftsman carves an idol. They decorate it with gold and silver and then fasten it securely with a hammer and nails so it won't fall over. Their gods are like helpless scarecrows in a cucumber field. They can't speak. They need to be carried because they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of such gods for they can neither harm you or do you any good. And you go, how ridiculous is that? People would bow down to a statue. That if it fell over, you had to pick it up. I mean, can you imagine that? Just a pile of wood? Hmm, that's so ridiculous. Um, if we could skip over, can you guys go to that 1 Timothy 6, 17 reference about teach those who are rich in this world? Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all, of our, all we need for our enjoyment. We don't, put our, we don't put faith in a stack of wood. We put faith in a stack of paper. I mean, if, we had a, if I had a briefcase with $2 million and said, here you go, I'm set. This will take care of me the rest of my life. The stack of paper will take care of you? Actually, you know what happens if somebody gave you that money? You would have to find a place to put it real quick so you could take care of it. So somebody wouldn't steal it. Money doesn't save us. We have to save money. Has anybody discovered this? Well, then why do we put all our confidence in money? And by the way, if the stock market goes down, guess what happens to your money? If somebody steals it. And we read stories of people who win the lottery. They win tens of millions, sometimes $100 million. And their lives are ruined. I thought that the money would take care of me. Money is just like a block of wood. It's useful. A block of wood is useful. But you shouldn't worship it. Look, anything I need, anything I say, this is what gives me happiness, this is what gives me an identity or uh, some sort of self-worth, if this gives me security and I can't live without it, well, God wants us to get our identity and our self-worth and our joy from him. Hmm. I mean, you could see how tons of things could be idols. Could make an idol out of a relationship with somebody else. And if they leave us, then there's nothing to live for. Even though God hasn't left us. You could make an idol out of a career. My career's over. I'm done. There's nothing to live for. This is where I get all my security, all my happiness, and all my self-worth. And if I don't have this job, then I have nothing. Well, this is why we need a relationship with Jesus. He gives us all those things. And then even if friends betray us, even if loved ones die, even if we lose a career, even if all of our money is taken away, we can still have love and peace and joy because we have him. 
So don't think idolatry is dead. We're not bowing down to some statue that falls over. But boy, we can bow down to a stack of money. And boy, we can bow down to a career. And boy, we can bow down to a relationship with another person, even though we know they won't live forever. You can also know when you really put your finger on an idol for somebody, because if you talk about it, they are instantly angry. Because you have blasphemed. How dare you talk about that? And you can see that in our culture today, we are chasing after all kinds of idols. That's why we're reading these stories. We need to be bold. Here's a life application. We must boldly place our faith in God Almighty who keeps us from stumbling. I mean, I hope that strikes you that when Dagon fell over, they had to come put him up. I don't want to worship a God that I have to take care of. I want a God that takes care of me. Amen, mm. We read this in Jude a couple of weeks ago. I want to remind you of this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. God is able to keep me from falling. God is able to keep me from falling. Can you say that with me? God is able to keep me from falling. That's why we worship him. Money can't. If it did, then everybody who's wealthy would be the happiest people on earth. Is that true? No. If a career could, well, what happens when we get to the end of the career? If a relationship with another person gives us all these things, then what happens if they die? What happens if they disappoint us or leave us? Can't be. That's why we're reading this. Our worship is in the Lord God who keeps us from stumbling. Through a terrible plague, God proved to the Philistines that he's the one true God. They didn't listen when Dagon had fallen. They just stopped stepping on the threshold. Don't step on the threshold. That's the lesson. No, that's not the lesson. The lesson is you're worshiping a stupid block of wood that looks like a half fish and half man, and that's not at all true. There's nothing to it. It's a scarecrow. So then the Lord's hand was heavy, and he struck the people of Ashdod in the nearby villages with a plague of tumors. When the people realized what was happening, they cried out, we can't keep the ark of God of Israel here any longer. He is against us. We'll be destroyed along with Dagon, our God. They're still putting their faith in Dagon, the block of wood. And now they're realizing, hey, this God is bringing this plague on us. So they called together the rulers of the Philistines, uh, Philistine towns, and asked, what should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And the rulers discussed it and said, we'll move it to Gath. There were five major cities among the Philistines and you'll see they'll start moving them from one to the next. Okay, and so this is just another one of those five major cities, Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel to Gath. But when the ark arrived at Gath, the Lord's heavy hand fell on all its men, young and old, and he struck them with a plague of tumors and there was great panic. So they sent the ark of God to the town of Ekron, the third of the five cities. But the people there 
when the people of Ekron saw it coming, they cried out, they're bringing the ark of God of Israel here to kill us too, because their friends had told them what had happened. And the people summoned the Philistine rulers again, and they begged them, please send the ark of God back to Israel, <coughs> back to its own country, or it'll kill us all, for the deadly plague of God had already begun, and great fear was sweeping across the town. Those who didn't die were afflicted with tumors, and the cry from the town rose to heaven. You'll see in a little bit that apparently there were rats that infested the towns and then the people died of tumors. And most people think this indicated the bubonic plague. When the bubonic plague was sweeping through Europe in the 1300s, um, they, we now know that this is a type of bacteria that infects your lymphatic system and it came from fleas that were carried by rats. And when the fleas would, get, uh, would come off the, jump off the rats and get in people's houses and the fleas would bite the people, they would transmit the bacteria. And then your lymph nodes would swell up with the bacteria and become these big tumors. And I think the French word for it, or maybe it's, I don't know, but it's bubos. And that's where bubonic plague comes from. Tumor plague. And then they would explode and get the infection all over the place. And when your lymphatic system shut down, then your ability to fight disease and all things, everything goes crazy. And so people, the, the circulation would stop in their fingers and toes and the nose and their ears and everything. And you'd get gangrene and your ears and your nose and your fingers and toes would all turn black. And it was called the Black Death. 30 to 90% of the population would die within 10 days. So when these people saw this coming, they're going, whoa, get this out of here. I want you to understand the Philistines were reluctant to give up their prize trophy. So they didn't give it back right away. They kept moving it from place to place. They moved the ark to places they hoped were outside of God's jurisdiction. If you're wondering, well, why did they keep moving it? Well, they thought, well, maybe he's only a God that has jurisdiction over this part of the territory. If we move it over here, then Dagon is stronger over here. This is what happened when Ahab, in the time of King Ahab, when the Arameans were attacking, they, God helped the people of Israel defeat them. And the Arameans concluded this, these Israelite gods are gods of the hills. That's why they won, but we, can't, we can beat them easily on the plains. So they got another army and said, this time we'll fight them on the plains. I want you and me to know we can boldly go to God anytime, anywhere, because there's no place outside of his control. David wrote this, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell on the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. Psalm 139. We can boldly pray to God because he is not in a box. He's everywhere. I can pray to God when I'm on a trip. I can pray to God when I'm at home. I can pray to God in the middle of the night. I can pray to God anywhere. I don't have to be at center point on a Sunday morning. Contrary to many people believe, there's not better reception in my office than in other places. We can pray to God anywhere. Hmm. Finally, after seven months of suffering, the Philistines finally decided to give the ark back. And sometimes people go, well, what in the world, John? I mean, why would God be so hard on them? They could have given it back right away. 
You'll see when they give it back, all the plagues stop. They even had even said, hey, this is their God doing this, but they didn't want to give it up. We'll talk about that in a minute. If you and I know the right thing to do and God's word is telling us the right thing and we won't stop, don't expect consequences to get easier in your life. That is a bad move. Hmm. The Ark of the Lord remained with the Philistine territory for seven months. They'd moved it everywhere and they didn't know where else to put it. Then the Philistines called their, in their priests and their diviners, their witch doctors basically, and asked them, hey, what should we do about the Ark of God? Tell us how to return it to its own country. And they said, well, send the Ark of God of Israel back with a gift. They were told, send a gift, guilt offering so the plague will stop. Then if you're healed, you'll know it was the hand that caused, it was his hand that caused the plague. Well, what sort of guilt offering should we send, they asked. And they were told, well, send, since the plague has struck both you and your five rulers of these five cities, make five gold tumors and five gold rats, just like those that have ravaged your land. Make these things to show honor to the God of Israel. Perhaps then he will stop afflicting you, your gods, and your land. Listen to this. Don't be stubborn and rebellious as Pharaoh and the Egyptians were. By the time God was finished with them, they were eager to let Israel go. So they knew. They'd even known what happened to the Egyptians 400 years earlier. Hmm. Now build a new cart and find two cows that have just given birth to calves. Make sure the cows have never been yoked to a cart. Hitch the cows to the cart, but shut their calves away from them in a pen. Put the ark of the Lord on the cart and beside it, place a chest containing the gold rats and gold tumors you're sending as a guilt offering. Then let the cows go wherever they want. If they cross the border of our land and go to Beth Shemesh, which was the, it was a town where they knew a bunch of priests of, the God, of God lived. It was one of the priestly towns that was assigned to them when Joshua had come into the land. Then we'll know it was the Lord who brought this great disaster upon us. If they don't, we will know it was not his hand that caused the plague. It came simply by chance. And sure enough, without, without veering off in other directions, the cows went straight along the road toward Beth Shemesh, lowing as they went. Now, I was raised on a farm, and I want to tell you this. If you take a, cow, a calf away from a cow and try to hitch her up to a wagon, that ain't going to work. Mama finds that calf. When that calf starts bawling, mama's finding him. And they knew this. They were making this almost impossible. They said, do it with two cows that have never pulled as a team, never been hitched to anything, and, take, and they've just given birth. This would be so impossible, unless God was directing them, it would never work. First of all, you can't just take two animals and hitch them in a, as a team and expect anything to happen. They're going to be fighting each other and pull the whole thing apart. Secondly, these mamas are going back to their babies. But what happened here was these cows went straight there, never even veering off the road. So they knew it was God at work. Note, sadly, even though the Philistines recognized God's awesome power, they were unwilling to turn away from their idolatry and change their wicked ways. Instead of worshiping God, they sent him away. I hope this strikes you. We worship a God who can't be put in a box. You can't manipulate him. We worship a God who we can worship him anytime, anywhere. We can pray to him anytime and he'll hear us. And yet these people knew 
that this God was way stronger than their dumb fish man, Aquaman idol or whatever he was. Okay? <laughs> Instead of worshiping, they sent him away. And you go, man, John, nobody would do that today. Oh, yeah, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, the apostle Paul wrote this, our lives are like a Christ are a Christ-like fra fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom, but to those who are being saved, we're a life-giving perfume, and who is adequate for such a task as this? Did you know that when you and I live out our faith and people see our lives change, some people praise God and say, I wanna be like that, I want what you have, tell me about Jesus. Did you know that other people will resent us? I had a college roommate that hated my guts once I gave my life to the Lord. He couldn't stand to be around me. And we'd been friends before that. But he just couldn't stand it that I was going to Bible studies, that I was praying stuff. He just hated it. He goes, this is just awful. I can't put up with this. And he moved out. Remember the RA in the dorm came and said, what happened here? I thought you guys were friends. And I said, well, I became a Christian. And he just, yeah, he says you're reading the Bible all the time. Are you reading it out loud? And I go, no, I'm reading it silently. Life application. We must not harden our hearts when we realize what God wants us to do. Hebrews 3, 7, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. Don't harden your hearts like the Philistines did. Yeah, he's the real God. Get him out of here. Yeah, I know this is what the Bible says, but I don't care. That's not what I want. Tell me what I need to do to get God to give me what I want. That's what I want. Mm-mm. We don't come to God and tell him like he's a genie and we can make our wishes and he has to fulfill them. We come to God and say, God, what do you wish? Because you are my king. Doesn't mean we can't tell him our problems and our needs, but we're also saying, God, what do you want me to learn from this? So here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to pray a prayer of surrender. It always starts with a surrender to Jesus. But even when we've been following Jesus for a while, God calls us to surrender every part of our lives, and it may mean surrendering our career. It may mean surrendering our relationship. It may mean surrendering our money, our time, or whatever else it is we haven't surrendered fully yet. Does this make sense to everyone? Amen. Heavenly Father, I just come before you, and we just, this story just reminds us that you are everywhere, you are good, you are all-powerful. Lord, I thank you that you demonstrated clearly to the Philistines who you were. You demonstrated clearly to the Israelites who you were, but they wouldn't trust you. And Lord, I want to learn from them, and I don't want us to harden our hearts today. God, if there's an area in our lives where we know we're wrong, we know that we know that we know this needs to change, I pray that we will quit fighting you. If it's a secret addiction, I pray that we'll get help. If it's a grudge, I pray that we'll let go. God, we, got, we, we have to have you. 
If you heard God speak today about anything, about trusting him, about letting go, whatever it might be, would you just pray to him silently right now, right where you are and say, God, I heard you. Please keep my heart from being hard. Give me a soft and pliable heart that will trust you anywhere, follow you anywhere. I want your will, not mine, to be done. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.